You are listening to the Shit You Can't Make Up podcast, a conversation with friends, hosted by Marisol Sanchez. Hey, before we start the show, we have to remind you of our great, great sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Convenient, affordable, private online counseling, anytime, anywhere. BetterHelp.com. It's professional. All the counselors are licensed and accredited. It's affordable. Pay a low flat fee for unlimited sessions, and it's convenient. Do it at your own time and at your own pace. How easy is that? Check out BetterHelp.com. Now, let's go on with the show. Hello. Uh, Thanks again for checking in and listening in. Um, This is Shit You Can't Make Up with Marisol. And um, today is November 8th, and I have a very special guest, and I'm very grateful um, Dana Sachs is here with us on the podcast. Uh, she's an author and an activist. Is that fair to say? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, I told you offline, um, welcome, first of all. Thank to, you. The introductions are always awkward, but then in 10 minutes, we'll forget the mics are with us and we'll be fine. Yeah. Um, I, met you and I don't expect you to at all remember I want to say it was probably my kids are 15 so it was probably about 12 13 years ago you came to one of our book clubs for a mother's group uh-huh. um I you probably won't remember me because I was probably 80 pounds overweight at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I had just had twins wow. and we I remember the book it was the um if you lived here was that what year? What, yeah, so twelve years ago would have been about, about um, um, two thousand four, two thousand five. Did that sound about right? Um, it might have been the house on Dream Street or the house on Dream Street. I've been a fan. I've been a fan for. Um, I love your writing. I love y- your writing is also um, beautiful. The way Thank you. you know um, your prose, the just the visualizations that you give. So I was. You know, I Facebook friended you um, a few years ago, and you miraculously accepted. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and then I became really a huge, um, you know, a creeper because you started posting a lot about refugees and the crisis, and you traveled, I believe, to Greece. Yes. Um, and then I'm like, okay, this is someone I I want to have a conversation with, and I want to. Oh, great! I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so can we start with the refugee crisis first? Sure, sure. So you're part of an organization. Um, right. I'm part of an organization called Humanity Now, which is based here in Wilmington, North Carolina, where we both live. Um, but it, the my involvement with the refugee situation got started before Humanity Now existed. Um, should I tell you? About that? I would, I, yes. And I, what I'd love you to do is um, talk dumb, like bring it down. Because I know, I know personally, um, with, especially with the Syrian refugees, um, a lot of people I know, you know, not to make commentary on the U.S. media system, but we're not really told a lot about international news. You know, it's really all about us. And um, I remember posting something trying to explain to people the Syrian conflict. Um, but most people don't really understand what's going on in, in Europe or how it started or why it's, you know, affecting all of us. 
Right. Okay. So I'm going to, I'll try to give you a little bit of history. Um, as you know, there have been a number of conflicts in the Middle East over the past few decades. I mean, the Afghan, the Afghanistan situation goes back um, to like the 1970s, um, and they basically haven't had peace in that country since then. Um, the war in Iraq started in 2003, and the war in Syria started in um, 2011, and there's been all sorts of other smaller, lesser-known conflicts in that region all along. So um, the lack of stability has led to um, what I guess I would call a refugee and migration crisis with people from the war zones fleeing basically for their lives and people from other areas um, leaving because it's not really possible to survive there economically. They can't get jobs or they've their jobs have been lost because of um, – Wars that took place before. There's no the, the economies are devastated. I mean, there's no nothing. Yes, there's nothing, nothing. <clears throat> so um, this this uh, re- the, this movement of people from the Middle East toward Europe got much much worse um, after the war in Syria began because that has just been a catastrophic situation. Um, something like Half of the pre-war population of Syria, which was around 22 million people, have been displaced from their homes, and about a quarter of those people have left the country. Yeah, the numbers are extraordinary. It's staggering. Yeah. You can't – it's really, I think, to give the American public a little bit of credit, it's almost – impossible to wrap your mind around sometimes. Yeah. I mean, if you tried to imagine what that would be in in our country, which is so much bigger than Syria, um, it would be whole states that were emptied, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So that's what has happened there. And um, as people... And I'm trying to think, I don't even think it really rained into our, 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 you know, the fabric of our conscious here until maybe like the last election cycle when was it? Uh, I mean, I, I'm going to sound really silly if I mispronounce it. Uh, um, the politician d- couldn't remember, didn't know. The, oh, Aleppo. Aleppo. Yeah. Um, um, Gary Johnson. Yes. I think that's yeah. the first maybe that Main Street, like, even really kind of like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Up. Right. The, I mean, so people had been fl- fleeing. Syria since 2011 when the revolution started, but it got much worse as the war got worse. And a lot of them, most of them have ended up in huge refugee camps in um, Lebanon and Jordan and also in Turkey. Um, but a lot of them have also tried to get to Europe because living in a refugee camp is not a life. You might not die there, but you can't you, you, have you been to a refugee I haven't. I've been to refugee camps in Greece. What, what are they like? What's- um, well, the ones in, in Lebanon and Jordan, from what I've heard, are just these vast tent cities where, you know, tens of thousands of people live um, either in tents or what I call FEMA trailers, you know, those yeah. very small portable um, trailers that, that are more substantial than tents, but still extremely uncomfortable and cramped. Um, so they live there. It's basically it, the pictures I've seen look like desert. 
Um, and there's very little to do and there's very little hope. And so, um, the people that end up in Greece, uh, generally move through Turkey and their dream is to get to Europe where they think they can start a new life or they hope to start a new life and have a stable situation. Um, so the, the photographs that you've seen of people crossing the Mediterranean in these little boats, um, have been people crossing from Turkey into Greece and then more recently people crossing from the Horn of Africa into towards Italy, mostly Italy. And these are extremely dangerous crossings, um, especially if you're in a little rubber raft. And so, I mean, everybody's heard about the deaths there. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm getting chills because I'm trying to imagine as a mother, you know, this devastation around. I'm trying to mm-hmm. empathize. I'm a mother. I have three children. My government has completely, you know, evaporated. There's just war. And I'm going to risk my life and the life of my children to get on a... I I can't even, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And I've talked to a lot of those people, who parents who've gotten on those boats with their children. And one of the criticisms that you hear um, is that is that these people are disregarding the lives of their children in order to get on these boats and they're putting their children's lives at risk for no reason. And what I've seen is that this is a demonstration of how much these people fear going back to their homelands and f- and feel like there is no choice for them. If they are going to put their children on these boats, they feel like they have no other choice. And in many cases, they don't. Um, I've, I've talked with Syrians, for example, who ended up in Turkey and, um, thought that they could stay in Turkey, but they couldn't, they couldn't make a living for themselves and they couldn't get support there. So they felt like they were basically pushed onto the boats and they had children and, and these boat rides are, are nightmares. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. anyone. I'm, I'm, grew up in Miami. So I, I remember, you know, Cubans, uh, coming over in the little boats and that's a, 90 mile pretty you know not easy yeah. i'm not you know please don't yeah write me about but compared to you know horn of africa and yeah um a different trip in itself but i i would i hate to you know do, make a blanket statement but it's pretty ignorant to think that anyone would do that unless there was despair and you know get on a boat and take your children unless yeah. There was no other, they felt like they had no other choice. No one's doing it for, I'm going to see, like a gamble. Oh, I'm going to see if this is a better, you know. Right. I think for some reason, um, it's easy to imagine that other people don't have the same feelings about their children that we have. You know, when you see it from a distance, you might think, oh, I would never do that. But people all over the world generally have the same feelings about their children and they're trying to save their children's lives. And that's why they get on the boat. Yeah. I, um, I'm, I, I don't, you know, we discussed a little bit about trying not to get political. Um, I get very frustrated when, you know, I know that with the travel ban and things that have, um, incurred recently, there is like this little flare up about like, you know, don't accept the refugees, they're possible terrorists and, and so on. And I, to me, you know, my heart just kind of bleeds like yeah. where's your christianity where's your where's your belief in in helping the less fortunate cuz i don't care who your spiritual leader is let's just use jesus as an example since he's the most used i cannot imagine him being here and 
closing the doors to this. Um, yes. I mean, I, I think, I think that, um, the idea of closing our doors to people who are in desperate need has got to go against the moral code of people from any religion. Yes. And if you come up with a reason that you think justifies that, then it's most likely an excuse because there's no factual statistical evidence that shows that these people are a threat. As they say, and this is true, they are not terrorists they are victims of terrorism it, it's it boggles the mind um it just boggles the mind that we would i mean these are children i would you know these i, I think of mostly yeah. the children you know the i remember during the iraq war i had read um a statistic and it, uh, i probably should have looked it up beforehand but it was something like 50 percent of the uh, population that had been displaced after the war war that you know we had a hand in we're under the age of 18 yeah that's these are children children of the world it doesn't matter where they were born they they had no you know say in where they were born or what happened to them they're children we're adults in this amazingly prosperous country um i'm sorry i just it, it makes me sad it makes me frustrated yeah that um we aren't open hearted to help uh-huh. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you and I are both parents of teenagers, and we can think as parents about what we wish for for our children and the idea that they could um, be in physical danger in a war zone or else be in a situation where they have absolutely no hope for the future is, is really, um, it goes against everything we want for our children's lives. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. So how did this speak to you? Like, what was your personal? So um, a couple of things. Uh, I My background as a writer has been for many years I um, focusing on Vietnam. So um, three of my four books are about Vietnam, um, one novel and two nonfiction books. And um, so... As part of that, I have learned a lot about the war in Vietnam, and I wrote a book. Um, it's called If You Lived Here. Sorry, it's not called. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, I forget that. Um, I have your website up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's called The Life We Were Given. Okay. Um, Operation Baby Lift International Adoption and the Children of War in Vietnam. And that was my second um, nonfiction book about Vietnam and my first book and only book about, um, about that's specifically focused on the war there. And so I spent a couple of years researching, um, the, the period of time that Americans tend to call the fall of Saigon and Vietnamese call the liberation of Saigon. Anyway, the very last <laughs> few weeks of the war, um, when there was a U.S. sponsored evacuation of displaced children called Operation Baby Lift, which was very controversial in the t- at the time and remains controversial, and it was an airlift of two to three thousand um, children from Vietnam who were subsequently adopted overseas. And so the book is about why that happened, whether or not it was necessary, what's happened to the children, what happened to the birth parents of those children. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the effects of war on civilians, particularly families, and the ways that families get separated. 
separated and their lives are um, sort of thrown into jeopardy. And so um, that's been an interest of mine for a long time. And then in the beginning of 2016, I would say I was basically paying attention to the refugee situation in Europe and the Middle East, um, like anybody else, just sort of reading the newspaper. Uh, And a friend of mine who works with refugees in California decided that she wanted to go to Greece and see the situation for herself. And she told me about it and told me what she was going to do, which was basically to volunteer um, with refugees there. And I said, oh, can I come? That sounds really interesting, in part because my interest in um, refugees in Vietnam was mostly historical. Yeah, I was looking back at something that took place 30 years ago, and I never had been in a situation where it was actually occurring at the moment. And I wanted to understand that experience better and also see what I could do to help. So we went over in May of 2016. Um, and what had just happened at that time, as I said, there were all these refugees who were moving um, from the Middle East towards Northern Europe in hopes of being able to reestablish their lives in stable, peaceful countries where they might be able to find jobs. Um, and everybody saw the media um, articles and the photographs of these enormous numbers of people who were moving north through Europe, the the pictures of um, lines of refugees walking down the sides of roads and the pictures of boatloads full of people crossing the Aegean and um, people at border crossings. And uh, Europe was basically freaking out because this large number of people were coming. If you talk about it in terms of the population of Europe – it was almost, an almost insignificant number of people who were coming, even if it ended up being a million people, which is probably around what it was over the year, like 2015. Um, that is not too many people for European countries to absorb, but it is a lot of num- a lot of people to come at once, and it became a political problem. And so Europe, trying to figure out what to do. Oh, no worries. <laughs> I don't need to get it. I just. Her phone went off. (laughs) I'm just holding it aside. Um, Europe, in trying to figure out uh, what to do, um, decided to eventually to close borders. And um, they uh, in 2016, the EU, the European Union, and Turkey um, came to an agreement that the EU would close its borders to these refugees. The borders basically had been open. So in Europe, um, because... Uh, ever since it became organized as the European yeah, Union, yeah. it has been a, a, a region of open borders. So if you could get into Greece from Turkey, then then you could move up to Sweden. Basically, you could you could continue on. Um, so Europe decided to close its borders at the um, at the border between Greece and Macedonia. Some other borders as well, but that was the most the, significant the one. one. And when they clo- the, the the agreement was that the um, that border would close, and the European Union would in turn give a lot of money to Turkey to provide for these refugees in Turkey. But when those borders closed, there were something like sixty thousand refugees who were already in Greece, and then they got stuck there. So what happened was they started basically just settling in to these 
makeshift refugee camps. Um, when I say makeshift, I mean little pup tents set up in fields right by the border. And there were very quickly something like 10,000 people at this one camp called Edomani, which is right on the border. You could basically see across. And it was a terrible humanitarian situation. Um, not enough toilets, not enough food, not enough water, cold. Um, this is, this is spring of, um, of 2016, um, that it got really, really bad. And, um, I had never been to Greece before. So my idea of Greece was these beautiful sunny islands and dry climate, the gorgeous Mediterranean. Northern Greece is more like the Balkans and southern, su yeah. you know, mountainous and green and extremely beautiful, but cold. And these people were out in these fields in the cold and the humanitarian organizations were just not equipped or able to deal with this crisis. For one thing, like the United Nations, um, UNHCR, United Nations um, High Commission for Refugees, had never actually operated in Europe before. So they didn't even have the sort of um, administrative systems set up to, set up to do it. Yeah. And so everything was happening very, very slowly, but everything was slow except for the the, influx of people. The influx of people. Mm -hmm. So what happened was that a volunteer, um, sort of a, a volunteer movement began of mostly originally Greek people trying to help. And then other people from Europe came in to try to help. And some Americans like us came to try to help. And they set up soup kitchens and they, um, got donations, rented space in warehouses, sent boxes of clothing, um, diapers, <laughs> baby milk, um, anything people needed except for permanent homes to just try to deal with the emergency situation. So take me to you land in Greece and you walk out to a real time refugee crisis yeah. situation. What, how does that what does it feel? What, like? What's that energy? Like, what do you, mm -hmm. Um, I think the first, the first impression that I got, cause I was nervous, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I had, I had heard terrible things. Um, I didn't know what we would do exactly. Um, I mean, I have traveled extensively in developing countries, so, um, it wasn't like I, I, uh, had no no sense of being in a foreign place, but I hadn't been in a, I hadn't been in a Muslim country before. And so I was nervous about that because it was something unknown to me. Um, I think the first thing I noticed was the children, how many children there were and children playing and which in a sense is just like get going into a village anywhere where you yeah. see children. Um, and then it was, you know, more and more sort of a sense that these, this is like a village. It's like a village of people living in tents. Um, you, I remember seeing this, this woman who, um, was sweeping in, sweeping the dirt in front of her tent, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, caring for her baby and, and people trying to make the best of a really awful situation. The toilets were these, you know, lined up porta potties and they were horrible. And, um, it was, I wasn't there after sunset, but it was very dangerous at night, particularly for women to, um, go to the, these porta potties. Um, so they'd usually have someone go with them. Um, people were extremely frustrated. So, uh, there was a lot of protesting. I never felt in danger there. Well, 
okay, let me say there was one time that I, I felt nervous. And the reason was not that anybody would have attacked me. It was that there were, um, teenagers who were really frustrated, who were, were like, um, who would get really route would get very rowdy. And, um, one time they were throwing rocks at the ground, but I was, I was close by and I was like, I don't want to get near the rocks bouncing off the ground. So there was a lot of anger there, but there was so much kind of kindness toward us as volunteers and, um, appreciation that we were there. We were, so we did a lot of different things. We handed out clothes at a clothing distribution center. We handed out food, um, from a soup kitchen, all of which were run by volunteers. Um, we, other people did things like there was a, there were all these, these volunteer teams had these great names. Like the, the soup kitchen was called hot food, Edomani. <laughs> and there was a group called team bananas and they would, they would walk through the camp in the morning and give bananas to pregnant women and nursing mothers and small children. And so there were all these people doing great work. And so there was a really good feeling of kind of solidarity between the volunteers and the the people who were stuck there, but it was a sad situation. Mm-hmm. And I came back from that trip and, um, my friend and I had both, uh, collected donations before we went. So we had taken over with us like $20,000, which was a huge amount of money. And we were able to do a lot of things like, um, pay for the soup kitchen to run for a couple days and buy milk for women who couldn't nurse their babies and, um, buy diapers. Oh my God. So many diapers, carloads full of dark diapers. And, um, I came back and I just was so inspired by what I'd seen over there that I decided to get more involved. And over the past, um, year and a half since then, um, three friends of mine and I in Wilmington started a small aid team called Humanity Now. And what we do is we raise money here in the States and we take it to Greece. And every dollar that we raise goes directly to helping refugees and small refugee aid teams, volunteer teams on the ground in Greece that we've now been working with, many of them for over a year, year and a half. We've seen the work that they do. And when we go to Greece, we say, what, what do you need? And, and, um, we spend the money that we raise directly. So we don't spend any of it on our trips to Greece or on our hotels or anything. Every single dollar goes to relief. So, um, tell me about how the organization started. Okay. Okay. So I, when I was in Greece the very first time with my friend from California and was writing, um, emails back to friends back home, um, one of my friends, Stephanie Myers in Wilmington, um, wrote to me and, and just out of the blue, she said, I think I want to go to Greece with you. And so when I got back, we were talking about how to raise more money because she has a lot of experience doing nonprofit fundraising. And um, we decided with the help of a man named Bucky Stein, who was also kind of inspired by what was the volunteer movement in Greece. Um, Bucky said, you need to raise money. So he um, said that he would support a fundraiser for us. So we started doing a fundraiser. And then again, out of the blue, a woman named Jennifer Maravellas, who I didn't even know, heard about it. And she sent me an email and she said, I want to help however I can. And so the three of us and Bucky organized this um, fundraiser. We didn't have a name or anything. We just wanted to raise money to go back to Greece. And Stephanie and I would go together. And, um, so we, we did that and we raised quite a bit of money and we went to Greece. And then when we got back to, from Greece, this was my second trip. Um, another friend of ours 
Carol Atwood said, I want to be involved too. So the four of us, Jennifer Maravais, Carol Atwood, and Stephanie Myers and I decided to form the group that eventually became Humanity Now. And we think we call Bucky our our mentor, our spirit, um, because he's he's was sort of the engine behind us to begin with. And we've been working together ever since. Um, so funny story. Yeah. How small Wilmington is. Yes. Um, Stephanie, I had a brief encounter with many years ago, probably uh, my kids were in grade school. I hit her car. <laughs> so if she remembers me, I hit her car at the Cape Fear Academy parking lot. And it was like a, a, a little scratch, but she had a, a white, I remember at the time, a white um, Mercedes. And I, re- I just remember <laughs> oh God, having to, you know, I wrote her a note or however um, she got in touch with me. And it was, it was a little thing, but it was, you know, a nice car. So yeah. it was you know yeah I, I obviously i had to pay for it and i had to drive her to take it to the mechanic and uh-huh. then you know and her daughter i think around that time was going to italy or was in italy or there was something going on but we it was just a brief moment in time yeah but i do remember i remember having these like insanely intense conversations just for like <laughs> 10 minutes in the car i'm in- not surprised yeah <laughs> but it was like so it's a small world it's a small world and and she's a great person i mean i every day working with with the three of them i feel so lucky because it's it's three very very competent devoted people and we work together really well and now we've all been to greece together twice and um i think we're 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 on our way to something it's awesome. great awesome can i just um can I just say how amazing you are? I mean, honestly, you know, people talk a lot, you know, and, and but to, I'm going to curse because I do that. <laughs> to like fucking do it, to do something, to actually make it. You didn't just make a difference to, you know, one person. You, that, so few people I know can actually say that, can say, I got on a plane and I did, I took action. I didn't just write a check. I, I took action. And that's just inspiring. I'm just sitting here thinking, can I go to Greece with uh, you next time? Yeah. I, I'm in. Like, I want to help you in, yeah. in any way. Well, I want to, I don't know how to respond to that without sounding fake. Um, but the thing is, and I think this is something that, I know this is something that a lot of people who do this kind of volunteer work would say is that it is an honor. It is such an honor to be around these people and be able to do something for them. It gives us, we get so much back from it. I mean, handing out a bowl of soup and having somebody smile at me and say thank you in Arabic, and I know that word now, and, you know, it 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 elevates you. I don't mean to say that I'm above. I just mean to say that it, it, it is, I mean, if you're a religious person, it's like a blessing. It's something that is, has given me so much more in my life than I feel like I've given back. And actually the first time I went to Greece, I came back here and I, um, there's a, there's a man here, Paul Wilkes, who is, he's also a writer, but he also, he started, um, uh, fund raising money to fund orphanages in India I, a, about I, I, yeah, ten I, years ago, maybe. Yeah, and he it's called Homes of Hope, and um, I went to talk to him because I was thinking about starting a little nonprofit aid team, and and I said to him, 
I feel so happy when I do this work. And he goes, that's the secret. That's the secret that people don't understand that you get something out of it. You, we get so much more out of it. Um, but people think it's something that we do that's a sacrifice, but it's not. I, I could see that. I could see mm-hmm. as you're talking how like it, it lightens you up. I would yeah. imagine it just, um, I'm, I would imagine it would make you it would bring gratitude into your life constantly yeah. just to have constant gratitude for what you have and also for what you're able to. Yeah. And the people that I've met, I mean, the people who are refugees and um, being able to talk to them and um, hear their stories and, and learn from their resilience is, um, you know, has been really an extraordinary experience. And the volunteers that I've met, are um just incredible people they are they're this really fascinating combination of extreme competence and extreme empathy and optimism and um humor uh and it it i mean it's an honor to be around them i learned so much from them And I have to say also, I mean, this has been a really hard year for anybody who's on the left politically (laughs) in the United States. And uh, I think this has helped me get through it in a lot of ways to just focus on um, learning about the situation and doing this work and raising money, as much money as we can to take over there. It feels like it's um, it's an emotional kind of antidote to the situation here. um, Listening to you talk and hearing about it it makes me... um it makes me wish that I could be a part of it and, um, I could see, I could, I think I could imagine, um, the growth you personally would get Mm -hmm. out of that experience. Yeah. Um, We've actually been able to, because we're public about what we're doing and, um, humanity now is, uh, does a lot of outreach. We have been able to, um, guide a number of people who have, wanted to go over there and do similar work. And, and um, there, there's a couple here in Wilmington who were former Peace Corps volunteers who went um, to Greece a few months ago and worked in a little volunteer aid clinic and did a lot of amazing stuff. And that just also made us feel great. So we, I, I see part of our role as being able to um, encourage and guide people who want to go and do this kind of work mm-hmm. because they need volunteers. I mean, the, the, the situation quieted down a bit um, uh, over some of the months since I've been involved and it's starting to get bad again and there's people arriving every day now on Lesbos Island and Kios Island and the the conditions are horrible and it's 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 an embarrassment to Europe uh, that they can't do a better job I'm not saying the United States would necessarily do a better job but but refugees are shocked to arrive in Europe and see that conditions could be so bad. So they need help. (laughs) I'm thinking of things like you you mentioned the truckload of diapers. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, how do these women do with sanitary napkins? Like how you just I'm trying to go through a day of like what it must be like for, you know, a mother in a refugee camp. Yeah. The just common, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, things like not being able to take a shower. Yeah. I was like I was thinking about lice. Yeah. Lice. Lice, mm-hmm. itchy skin from the heat and the cold, not being able to, to wash your children. It's too, if you're living outside and it's cold out, yeah. um, 
you know, you just, the children don't wash and then they get skin diseases. I mean, there's just, do you feel terrible. like since you, you wrote so much about, um, you know, Vietnam and the displaced, um, that somehow this is kind of taken you to your life's passion? Cause it, you mm-hmm. do light up like you, <laughs> You know, not to sound like a hippie, you know, cuckoo, yeah. but you kind of light up when you're talking about this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it also, the fact that I, I, um, studied this and conducted a lot of research on the situation in Vietnam gives me a lot of perspective. I mean, the, there were a lot of things that went wrong in Vietnam. I mean, the, the, the people that I was, um, the story that I was researching was about adoption and about taking displaced children and, and putting them up for adoption overseas and, and families were broken up because of that. Um, so what I'm seeing in Greece is, um, and in this situation, I never hear anybody talking about adoption. It's about families and about trying to preserve, um, the unity of families, but it's also about displaced families. There are so many stories of, for example, um, Syrian family where the husband or a son goes, went ahead in order to, um, get out of Syria early because, um, of forced conscription. Mm -hmm. They might have been drafted, um, in the arm, into the army. So they left early. And then, um, the rest of the family, the mothers and children coming later and not being able to reunite. So there's lots of stories of husbands in Germany and Sweden, um, and, France and just all over Europe and the, 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 the wives and children are in Greece or the wives and children are in Turkey. And they don't have an iPhone to. They do. Uh, no, yeah. they have phones. Okay. They are so connected. That's another thing that you see. Um, you see people phone is the phone is their lifeline. So That's I've heard awesome. criticism. Yeah. And if they lose their phones, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe. Um, but I've heard criticism, like there's, there were photographs of people getting off boats in Greece and, um, immediately taking photographs of selfies of themselves. And the criticism was, Oh, look, they're just tourists. They're taking selfies of themselves they in Greece. They have a phone. They're taking selfies of themselves to send to their family who were terrified that they would die on the crossing, prove that they made it. Yeah. I, I, I think we're best, all best served by not trying to judge um, yeah. <laughs> anyone in that situation. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so our, well, I'd like to stop at the right here just to say, please, you know, if you listen to this, I, I've never asked you to buy any product. Um, you know, we do have a sponsor and you might need to check in with them, betterhelp.com after listening to this episode. But, um, I would really, um, ask that if especially in the season of um, Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up that um, if you have any any um, charitable inclination to please consider giving to do you want to give the information yeah that it would be great um, it's called humanity-now.org and um, we just received our approval from the US government for 501c3 um, nonprofit status which means that all deduct all donations are tax deductible and i just want to say again that all donations go directly to the relief effort so we have no administrative costs even when we have a like a fundraiser we spend our own money to buy the food and wine and stuff because we we love to be able to say that 
100% of donations goes directly to helping people um, who are really in need. So if you've um, enjoyed any of the podcast or any of the blog, if I've ever done any nice uh, anything nice for you, please consider giving um, to this organization. Thank you. It would, <laughs> it would mean um, a lot to me. Um, so I want to weave from this. Are you writing about this? Are you taking I this am. experience? To, yeah. Is it nonfiction or yes. fiction? Yeah. yeah. I'm in the middle of writing a book about it. So it's been very interesting to see how um, the research for the book and the um, the humanitarian work kind of support each other. Um, meaning that I meet, I meet so many people through the volunteering and, um, watch them in action. And, but as a journalist, I am absorbing it and learning from it. So a lot of what I'm saying today comes out of the fact that I'm researching this whole situation all the time for writing this book, but it also helps me to make the decisions that I need to make as a volunteer and as someone running an aid organization. So the tricky part is to maintain my journalistic integrity, um, and be able to kind of look at the situation neutrally. Um, but I'm also a journalist who is an activist, so I'm pretty open about my opinions yeah. about um, the situation there. Mm -hmm. So I've been, so some of the people that I work with um, have um, been willing to be interviewed by me and told me their stories. And so that gives me a, a deeper perspective on where they're coming from, why they're doing this work, because I'm writing not just about the situation in Greece, but the rise of this volunteer movement, which was really surprising to me that, I mean, to a large extent, the relief effort has been run by people who just showed up. It, it was organic, right? It yes. was just a natural progression. Yes. I love that. I love, you know... We were talking before the podcast. Today's November 8th. It's been a year since the uh, elections here in the country. And I, you know, we just had a, a, a second mass shooting in a month or, or something like that. The news is just, it's just, it's bad. Everything's ugly. It's bad, bad, bad. But in my day to day, in my, you know, I wake up from and go to bed. In my day to day, people are good. I Most agree. people are good. We want to help, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we need to focus on that. I think oh, if we yeah. could just flip the switch, shut off the TV and, and, you know, follow our heart, not follow our mind so much, um, we would all just, you know, just oh, be so much yeah. better off. Oh, totally. I mean, I think that's part of what I mean when I'm saying that this work has sustained me over the past year. Pe I believe people are good. Mm -hmm. I think they can get confused. I think fear drives a lot of people's decisions. But I think at heart, people are good. I do too. And I think we have a, a, a wonderful opportunity. That's how I've chosen to look at the last year. Is It's an opportunity for us to face the mirror, look at our decisions, look at our personal belief systems, and really what, what rings truth to us and I think if you know the the only image anyone really comes up with with the Syrian refugees the boy in the that yes was, that was drowning mm -hmm. um I don't care if you're right if you're Republican if you're on the right I don't it doesn't matter we're humans we're all what you know these are children these are people um 
that want exactly what we want. We just want mm-hmm. to live our life the best way possible. I have seen so many refugees also who, who are volunteering. I mean, I, I just can't even tell you how many times I've seen refugees not just helping each other on a small scale, but spending their days cleaning floors in, in aband- the abandoned buildings where people are living or cooking for large groups of people. Um, they also, I think, feel elevated by the effort. It, it makes all of us feel better. It gives us all a sense of purpose. And working together, refugees and volunteers, um, makes us all sort of feel like we're part of the same world. Yeah. We have the same mission. Yeah. That, um, I'm, 60 Minutes should really do a piece of yeah. <laughs> that. Would be, follow yeah. you guys up there. Um, well, we are getting towards the end. Um, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for sharing My that. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I, I um, I'm just so impressed. I'm just like, I'm just, it's one thing, you know, I mean, I, I like to volunteer and I do, I do things, but, and, it, but to get on a plane, to go to a foreign country, to get off the plane and to help and serve, to serve human, I mean, you're, it's the best of the human condition and you represent that. So oh. <laughs> if you haven't been told recently, if you haven't won some award, um, you should because, um, you're like the best example of what we can bring to this world. Oh, so. well, thank you. I, I want to say again that, I mean, I, I get so much out of this that, that, um, it, it's sort of inexpressible, but it, it has meant a lot to me. I could see, I could see, yeah. uh, I feel like that's, you're living your passion. Yes. Yes, I am. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Again, the uh, website Um, is. It's humanitynow.org or on humanity-now.org is our website. Um, You can find us on Facebook at, um, if you, if you just type in like humanity now colon direct refugee relief you'll get to us i think there might be another humanity now out there but we're the one that deals with refugees and you can donate through that as well thank you and i'll post that um on anything that i i write about this and and do that so um you can find it on my uh or you'll be able to find it on the website great and so on um and i'm actually i think you know from now on for like the rest of this year on my podcast i'm gonna add this to it and ask people as a christmas gift to me Uh (laughs) please donate Um, that would be great we're going to we're going back to greece in february so we've just started our campaign for that and um can i just say some of the things we've um we're sending right now we're sending several hundred dollars like six hundred dollars over to lesbos island to buy coats and boots for um winter um, we support a shelter for homeless women um, and their children, and they also do LGBT outreach in Athens. Another LGBT um, housing accommodation program, we've been trying to fund them so that um, these vulnerable people will have a place to live. We support um, distribution of a lot of food, um, fresh fruits and vegetables uh, for people living in camps in northern Greece. Um the list goes on and on. And, you know, for the listeners, it's not only just, uh, you know, donations. If you are listening to the story and you think of some connection that you have that can help, reach out because we yes. all know people. We all know people that could, you know, have a connection with 
something yeah clothing um or if you have medical skills um or you're an esl teacher um and you want to go to greece to volunteer um they really really need volunteers i mean anybody i don't have those skills really but but um especially they especially need those kinds of people if you're a farsi or arabic or dari speaker and you could go over and be a translator for a while uh they would be desperately <laughs> happy to have you. Um, well, thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much for coming. And um, and guys, thank you for listening. I always appreciate it. And um, I will talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marisol. And make sure you listen to her every week by hitting the subscribe button. And by all means, share the blog and the podcast with your friends and family. Want more Marisol? Check out her blog at shityoucantmakeup.com or find her on Instagram at Marisol Podcast. Or, of course, just like all the people you went to high school with, Marisol's on Facebook as well. I'm Sean, the producer, and you can hear me on Dadson, D-A-D-S-O-N, all one word, podcast, where a son and a father talk about different things that's going on in life. You can find us on Instagram as well. Hey, folks, we'll see you next time.